That's about 70 minutes. Some of you aren't awake yet, I realize that. I'm sorry, I apologize. Some of them I'm going to spend a little more time on than others. I'll tell you which one is my favorite one as we go through them. The seventh last saying is Jesus. It has been said that all the words a man utters in his entire lifetime, it's what he says on his deathbed that makes the most sense. P.T. Barnum from Barnum and Bailey Circus. How are the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? General John Sedwick, he was a Union Army general. He had his final words cut off in mid-sentence. He said, they couldn't hit an elephant at this disc. Michael Faraday, renowned chemist, when asked what he would do in the next life, he answered, at the age of 75, as he was dying, I shall be with Christ. That's enough. But others have said, and I think this fits more with the last sayings of Jesus. Last words are windows to a person's soul, revealing their values, their priorities, and their innermost thoughts. So as we come to the last seven sayings of Jesus, I believe that that's more precisely what we will see is the innermost workings of his heart, his soul, his mind, even as he hung there between heaven and and earth. Suspended be heaven and hell in his final hours before death, only able to speak with great difficulty. These weighty words dropped from his lips while his sacrificial blood splashed on the ground. Weighty words. Three of those words, or sayings, are given before noon. The crucifixion began at 9 o'clock in the morning. It ended at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Three of those were given before noon, the last four were given afternoon. In fact, we think that possibly the last four may have been given actually in a very quick succession within the last half hour before he died. And, the, and you have to go through the four Gospels to get the seven sayings as you see them laid out, uh, or as I'll, I'll present them here uh, in, the, in the message this morning. So let's look at the first three. Let's, let's look at from 9 a.m. to noon. And the first saying that we find is a prayer of forgiveness. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Several things I want you to notice about this prayer. It was persistent, there was a priority of his prayer, and there was passion in his prayer. First of all, the persistence. The word said there is what's called in the imperfect tense. It means Well, they laid him out on the cross, and they drove the nails through his hands. He was forgiving them. Well, they drove the nails through his feet. He was forgiving them. Well, they took the cross and dropped it into the ground. They were forgiving. He was forgiving them. Now, this prayer may have not have been audible, but and and the implication is it may have gone on all the way through those six hours. Forgive them, for they know not what they do, which again reveals his heart. We see into his soul. The priority of that prayer, forgive them. He was specific. Man's greatest need is not health, food, clothing, housing, or even money, but divine forgiveness. Divine forgiveness is freely offered, but only granted to those who repent and believe. He wants to forgive you today. He wants you to turn from your sin to him. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The passion of his prayer, forgive them. Isaiah 53, 12 says, For he 
bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. He continues to make intercession for us even today. That praying that began there on the cross has never ended. When man had done his worst, Jesus prayed, not for justice, but for forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior. Forgiveness. Prayer of forgiveness. The second saying, promise of hope. And as Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that doesn't mean anything unless you got the backstory. Listen as I read. One of the criminals who hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, You are not the Christ. Save, a, save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our, de- our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think it's providential that Christ was crucified with two thieves. Both of them had the same access Both of them could read the same inscription that Pilate had put above his cross or his head, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Both watched and listened as he graciously gave his life for the sins of the world. Both were mocking Christ, as we find in Matthew 27 and Mark also, verse 15. But here in Luke, the account, there's the conversation between the one thief and Christ himself, which Christ's response was, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus gave a promise of hope. Notice his destiny was not secured by baptism, good works, or behavior, or the entrance of a problem probation period. The criminal had lived his life as a rank sinner, and while hanging on a cross, he expressed simple yet unproven faith in Christ. And the result? Christ accepted the faith, and the man expressing the faith. Promise of hope. Not a wish. This is a no-so hope. The hope, that eternal hope that we have. That we have because of what Christ did for us. In the midst of the worst death a person can experience, at the most pivotal moment in time, Jesus is doing what he did best. Loving the unloved and saving the lost. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Third saying, found in John chapter 19. A passion for others. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple he loved, which was John, John in his gospel never refers to himself personally, he always refers to himself as the disciple whom he loved. He said, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. A couple of things I want you to note here. I'm not spending a lot of time, nor actually does the scripture spend a lot of time on how Jesus suffered. We know he suffered. But in that suffering, this is 
conceivably the worst death that people could possibly die was crucifixion. He was fairly fully aware of everything that was going on around him, and he knew the people that were there. Think of it this way. All of a sudden, everything around them goes silence. And he's looking eyeball to eyeball with his mother and John. And it's just them in all his agony. He was fully aware. He saw and he spoke. The second thing I want you to notice is he, he never referred to his mother as mother. He always referred to her as woman or dear woman. At the, when he began his public ministry there at the marriage uh, feast, at that, from that point on, we always see him refer to his mother as woman or that dear woman. I think there's a purpose for that, personally. I think that there was to reinforce his separation, reinforce his mission, establish his role as Savior, and protect Mary. Two things. I want you to see the selfless, selflessness of the Savior. This is the third saying. All of the first three sayings all deal with others. In Luke, the prayer of forgiveness, the need of forgiveness for his enemies, the promise of hope, the need of hope for, his, for the hopeless, and the passion for others, this is the need of care for the hurting. He feels our hurts. He knows our hurts. He desires for us to come to him, to find our safety and our hiding place in him. Second thing I want you to notice is the appointment of John. John was his representative. Just as you and I are his representative today, today, we are his ambassadors for Christ. If you go through and look at the epistles, or as Paul wrote so many of them, you'll find over and over and over again, one another, one another, one another, one another, and then again you'll read one another. We are his representative as we minister to each other, as we pray for each other, as we seek to meet and help out each other's needs as we focus on what God would have us to do. He sent John as his representative. Jesus is not indifferent to the needs of those present. While hanging on the cross, he forgave the unforgivable, he saved the sinner, and he cared for his mother. And his care for others continues even today. The passion for others. Now we come to the last four sayings. The last four sayings start at noon, go to three o'clock. As I mentioned, this is a time of, of profound darkness. There's debates going on. Was this a worldwide darkness? Was this just a localized darkness? And nobody's been able to come up with an answer. So if that's a question in your mind, I would dismiss it. It was dark. It was very dark. And during this hours, this would be the time, I believe, that, as we'll see by one of the sayings, that God turned his back on the Savior, his Son. And in the last probably half hour, we'll have these four scenes kind of compound upon each other as he suffers there for our sins. The first one, found in Matthew 27, verse 45 to 46. We see the poison of sin. I'm going to spend a little bit more time here. To, if we can just comprehend this in incredible experience and incredible judgment that is being poured out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, thank goodness, my God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness. Not mentioned in Matthew and Mark. It's presented as a simple fact without any explanation. We know the darkness often connected with judgment and evil. We think back to Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, that talks about the ninth plague that was setting up to get Israel released. It was, it was a plague of darkness, followed by the tenth plague, which was the death of the firstborn. John chapter 3, verse 19, men love darkness rather than light. John many times uses darkness as a contrast between light and evil. Good and evil, evil and truth. I believe darkness here is a symbol of God's wrath being poured out on the sun. One pastor put it this way. This darkness is the shadow of God's back when he turned away and closed his eyes to the plight of his son. This helps to explain his cry in the garden. Remember, he said, my God, my God, remove this cup from me. Remove what cup? The divine wrath. Unless, of course, it's your will. And it was God's will for him to bear the divine wrath of God. The word forsaken even adds more to that. As it means to leave, abandon, to leave behind, to sever all attachments. To abandon a child and just drop them off and then go home, sell a house, move away, relocate, abandon, forsaken them. It's hard for us to fully, I believe, comprehend his cry from the cross for two reasons. Number one, we overestimate our own goodness. I'm not that bad. I'm certainly not deserving of hell. Oh, sure, I mess up from once, once in a while. Well, we overestimate our own goodness. The second reason is we underestimate his holiness. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot stomach sin. He, due to his holiness, he must punish it by enforcing the penalty for it. He cannot lower his standards and start grading us on a spiritual curve. He had to judge sin. He had to be consistent with it. And the only freedom that we have from Suffering the penalty that is demanded by his holiness is that he placed all his wrath, his divine wrath, upon Jesus Christ. And so Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A man by Tim Smith summarizes it this way. Prior to this, Jesus had seen and felt the effect of sin in other people's lives as their words and actions pulled them away from God. The feelings of disappointment, pain, broken love as they chose another rather than the one who greeted them. But now Jesus finds himself submerged in sin, drinking it, breathing it, tasting it, smelling it, and experiencing it, and all its effects on his relationship with the Father, with whom he was always been one. For the first time, he experiences the anguish of separation from God, now separated physically, emotionally, and, and spiritually from the Father as he took on the sins of the world. In such a condition, he would experience the excruciating agony on the cross and the very things he had prayed for in the garden 
the love and the reassuring presence of God as he, un, un, as he endured these things is now taken away from him by taking on the sins of the world. He was bearing the divine wrath. Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus received the full weight of divine wrath on my behalf. He received the full weight of divine wrath on your behalf so that you would not have to bear that weight. That you would have free from not just sin itself, but freedom from the penalty of sin indeed. The fifth saying. Prophecy fulfilled. Now, if you know your Old Testament prophecy, you're fully aware that every one of these sayings is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's just that it's in this verse here in John that it specifically mentioned its fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. We see here two things combined, and, it, and this is probably one of the most difficult concepts to, to um, with our finite mind to wrap our mind around found here in this verse. We see the deity of Christ, and we see his humanity. We see his deity, Jesus knowing all things. How did he know those things? Because he's omniscient. He's God in the flesh. He knew these things. That's his deity. And then he expressed, knowing all these things, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said what? I thirst. Here is the source of living waters needing a drink. In his body, he was experiencing all the normal human limitations. He was thirsty. Prophecy fulfilled in Christ. Over 300 distinct prophecies in the Old Testament have been, been literally fulfilled in Christ. Some even would say maybe even as many as over 500. In Psalm 69, verse 21, written 1,000 years before Christ died on the cross, it said, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Psalm 22, many details of the crucifixion is listed in those verses. His cry from the cross, my God. It mentions the mockers, the descriptions of his physical abuse, piercing of his hands and feet, gambling for his clothing, all in Psalm 22. And then written 600 years before the crucifixion, Isaiah 53, which you may be familiar with. We didn't read it this morning. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and suffering. He was afflicted by God because of sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded and bruised by men. He led as a lamb to the slaughter. He was numbered with transgressors. He prayed for those who transgressed against him. These are, these are hundreds of years before the crucifixion ever took place that the prophecy might be fulfilled. I thirst. The consistent fulfillment of prophecy affirms two things. Number one, Jesus had a divine appointment. This was not an accident. The second thing is, our faith rests on a firm foundation of truth. This is true, folks. This is glorious truth. We're not, I'm not kidding you. I'm not teasing you. This is truth. And the fulfillment of Scripture reemphasizes that, that, our, that our life, our soul, can rest on the truth 
This truth can make all the difference for eternity. It's true. The sixth saying, this is my favorite. It is finished. There's nothing you can add to this ultimate supreme sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Once for all time, it is finished. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing. There's nothing you can add to it. So when Jesus had received the sour wine and the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Those three words are translated in English as one Greek word, tetelestai, or tetelestoi. It's a word of triumph. Used by a servant as he reports to the master, I have completed the work assigned me. Used by the priest when he examines an animal for sacrifice, it is fit for use. Used by a merchant when he examines a ledger and declares to you the debt has been paid in full. Used by Christ to specify the completion of the task, Restoration of fellowship with the Father, it is finished. Max Licato writes, The history-long plan of redeeming man was finished. The message of God to man was finished. The works done by Jesus as a man on earth were finished. The task of selecting and training ambassadors was finished. The job was finished. The song had been sung, the blood had been poured, the sacrifice had been made, the sting of death had been removed. It is finished. It's done. We don't have to renegotiate. It's finished. It's in place. It's been paid in full. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. Well, I owed a debt I could not pay. It's finished. Paid in full. Which leads us to the last saying. Again, I think it's significant. He began the first saying in prayer, prayer of forgiveness. Now he ends with a prayer of surrender. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. The sixth saying could be referred to as a song of triumph. It is finished. The seventh could be a prayer of trust. Under your hands I commend my spirit. So you're standing there at the cross. And you're listening intently. You're not a casual observer. You wanted to see what's going on. You want to know. Can you imagine what John and Mary felt? Christ, is, Christ was dead. To everyone who loved Jesus, his death on the cross seemed like a supreme tragedy. But was it? Jesus, his killers, the mocking crowd, Pilate, Herod, the Sanhedrin, all had perfectly fulfilled their part in God's plan to the letter. Everything had come to pass exactly as prophecy said it would. Grief, confusion, sorrow, shock, doubt. The disciples felt as if every hope had been shattered, but this was the greatest moment of victory in the history of redemption. Why is that? 
This isn't the end. This is just the beginning. The seven sayings of Jesus you have to gather and glean from the four Gospels. But each one of the Gospels record the resurrection. You don't have to search for it. It's plainly stated in each Gospel. He is risen. He is not here. As Stalin was conquering Russia, declaring that God did not exist, trying to convert the people to the Marxist theology or ideology and thinking, he would take his propaganda leaders and take them from city to city. Well, of course, the leading building in the city was the church, the Russian Orthodox Church. It was always in the center of town, as they do in Europe. It's the massive cathedrals were the centerpiece. Well, that was a major place where they could gather. Well, they went in, of course, and removed any semblance of Christianity. But the propaganda leader went into a particular city, called all the people together, and really droned on for two to three hours about the importance that they needed to put their faith in the state, that there is no God. And he finished dead silence. Finally, there was an elder gentle, elderly gentleman that stood up in the middle of the crowd, and he said, He is risen. Everybody stood up and said, He is risen indeed. We have hope, folks. We have the message of hope. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, we pray even as we come to you now at this time, as we close our service, and and Lord, we... Our faith rests in you. And if you're here this morning, we'd ask that you not look around, and I will not embarrass you. I do not want to embarrass you. I will talk to you privately after the service, or you can come and speak to me or one of the other pastors. But if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Savior, you do not have hope. You are hopeless. But you want to know the eternal hope which is Jesus Christ. You would like to be saved today. You'd like to have someone show you from the scriptures how to be saved. Is there anyone like that? If you just quickly raise your hand up and put it down. Secondly, if you're here this morning and, and, and as we have looked into the scriptures this morning, we have a great responsibility and a great privilege to share this hope. And I pray for you this morning that you will take on that great privilege and that great responsibility. Thank you, God, for your loving kindness, and we do pray for your continued moving in our midst, knowing that the word of God, as you have promised, would not return void. It would not return empty, but it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.